have you, you ever had the, been in that position to have to reassure someone who's about to go through something painful, painful moment? This is something nurses do all the time. They have to reassure patients right before surgeries. Parents do this all the time. I, I remember vividly the last few moments before a surgery for each of my kids as they're about to be wheeled away. It's, it's an intense moment. Their eyes getting big and you're trying in that moment to encourage them and give them something that they can hold on to as they're, they're going. Whatever the trial, people, people are basically the same. Always and everywhere, people are the same. So in those times, we try to assure them of a couple things that even though it's going to hurt, only a foolish person will lie in such moments. It's not going to hurt. It's, not. it's going to hurt, but it's not going to last. This is temporary. It'll be over. It, you'll get through it. And then we try to reassure of nearness in some way. So the temporary nature of it and nearness that you're not alone. This is what we were talking with the kids. I'll be with you the whole time, we say. Or, if that can't be the case, um, I'll be right over there. As you go through this thing, I'll be right over there. I'll be watching you the whole time. Or if you can't be there, the Lord will be with you. You're never out of his sight. The Lord will be with you the whole time. There's a special instance of this I read about when soldiers go into combat. Uh, they gather before. We don't know what's over that hill. We don't know what we're going to face. We don't know what's through that door. When we get through that door, something's on the other side. I do know about literature, and literature from all over the world through all time is full of these moments. It has them. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he that sheds his blood with me today shall be my brother. We're in this together. It's that kind of moment for Jesus and for the disciples. As we come to John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. I hope you'll look with us. As we are moving through the Gospel of John, what should stop us in our tracks at this moment is that just hours before he's going to be arrested, this is a matter of, we can count it in minutes, before he's going to be arrested, he's going to go through a mockery, a sham trial, he's going to be beaten his body ripped open. He's going to be mocked the whole way through. And then he's going to end up naked and exposed on a cross. Drowning. Just hours before that. Jesus is the one doing the assuring. He's the one who's saying, I'll be right there with you. We're going to cover a lot of verses today from 1512 to the end of chapter 16. But it's one conversation. And most of it is just Jesus speaking. But we should be clear about the big picture of what's happening. 
as we cover this, Jesus is going to walk alone uh, with eyes wide open, fully knowing what he's doing, into the snares of Satan. He's going to experience what our minds cannot possibly grasp. Try as we might to get a hold of it. He's not merely going to suffer and die in the flesh. He is going to take the weight of all human sin of all time on himself into death. And he is going to take it into the depths of whatever death can mean. All that death can mean. He's going to take that. And then he's going to break free of it. And there is no surgery, there's no suffering, there's no misery that we can endure that can possibly compare because all of those, all of ours, gets bundled up in his moment. Everything that we deal with, he takes there. And this is the thing that blows the mind. And yet, on the precipice of that moment. On the precipice, the God who made everything gives full attention to his disciples in order to give them assurance, in order to comfort them. His last thought draws together the intent of this. This is verse 33. 32 following. Look, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. Here we are, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you. This is why I've said these things, this conversation. So that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he prays for them. So let's spend a few moments to the, together here considering the comfort that the Lord Jesus offers. Because if he can offer it in that moment with the limits of a human body, being fully human, right before going to the worst experience that the powers of darkness can summon up, the sum total worst that all evil can conjure. If he can give comfort then, how much more can he offer it now, seated on the throne with no limits, exalted and glorified, having conquered death? A basic reality that the disciples couldn't escape and that we can't escape is in the world you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble. As, as I've said, the immediate cause for his words here is his impending suffering, which would also mean their suffering. That he suffers means they will. They were going to cut and run. They were going to find suddenly that they are weak-willed betrayers. They're going to find that they did not have the power in them to stay the course, even for their best friend, the best person they could possibly know. They were going to be overcome with fear, uncertainty, loss, disillusionment. 
They had staked their lives on Jesus being the Christ and winning big. And over a few days, everything was going to be shaken. Everything fall apart. But Jesus makes the frame bigger than that. So even in this moment, he gestures forward and he gestures wider. The trouble they're going to face is the same trouble that he faced. And he calls it the world. The world. Chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you in this coming experience and in the ones that follow, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This demands we ask the question, what does he mean by the world? What is this? One of my favorite writers, Francois Fenelon, he's a 17th century archbishop. He wrote of the world, as it appears in John's Gospel. The world is nothing other than all people who love themselves chiefly and who love things without regard to God. Each of us carries the world in our hearts. He's pointing to self-love. He's pointing to a mindset. It's a mindset that ignores God. Focused on self, ignores God. So the world, we have to be clear, doesn't mean the good earth that God made. The good world that God made. The good design. Rather, it's the rebellious corruption of that. Of that goodness. It's the kingdom that Satan gifted to mankind. Complete with his inner posture. The world is Satan's inner posture. Having been gifted to humans. Chosen Self, not God. Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us that he chose them out of that, out of the world, out of the mindset of self, rebellion against God. And for that reason, the world hates you. He goes on in the next verses to explain that the world means opposition to him. Rebellion against him. And the hostility that, that, that they are going to experience, the opposition, is because they now belong to him. Ha because you've been chosen out of the world, you are now the object of hostility. So here's a key point. The reason for their troubles with the world is also their comfort in the midst of the troubles. The reason for their trouble with the world is also their comfort in those troubles. They're not part of the world. They're part of Jesus. They're not part of the world. They're part of Jesus. He chose them. That's why they're hated. But that's also cause for comfort. Is this making sense? The world 
that has set itself against God hates Jesus and hates those who are part of him. If we experience that hostility, what comfort? It's because I am part of Jesus. The Lord knows how rough it's going to be for them in the years to come. He knows it's going to be. He knows for you too that living in this atmosphere, the atmosphere of rebellion against God, it's hard. And I'm not saying the atmosphere of 21st century America. Yeah, yeah. Always though, always is hard. Continuing to go through life in this body, your, in your body, that got used to ignoring God, that internalized ignoring God. It's hard. And we are constantly encouraged to love the self, to pamper the self. The world is hard to live in. It is. And so he reassures us. As he did them, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. The servant doesn't know what the orders are about or where this is going. But I've called you friends. Friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. I chose you. We often doubt our choices, don't we? Uh, I, I sure do. What, what, why did I? Was that the right thing? Why did I do that? If I had done this other thing, could it have gone this way? And I, I'll calculate out. What if? And so we often get paralyzed before we make choices. Then we frequently doubt how strong our commitments are. Because they're pretty weak. That's fair. We doubt because they are weak. We know it doesn't take much for us to waver. It doesn't take much for us to drift, to become unfaithful, to fear the world and to give in to its pressures. But Jesus says to his disciples who felt the same, you think you're called my follower because there was a day when I came by the Sea of Galilee and you were mending your nets and I said to you, follow me, and you left your dad in the boat and you came. You think. That's why. You're my follower. And then when I came to that tax booth and I said, come with me, and you came, you think that's why you're my follower. Or to us. You think you're a follower because you follower of Jesus, because you consistently have gone to church. Or because there was a day when you responded to a preacher and you came down to the front and you gave yourself. You truly did. Or there was a time when you felt desperate and afraid and you called on my name and in fact I showed up. You think that's why you're my follower. Yes, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's how it happened. But the other side of that truth is you are out of the world and you are in me because I chose you. I want you. 
a cosmic change happened in you. A universal change happened in you. Don't you know that you can't change ultimate reality, human? You small human, you cannot change something ultimate about you. Don't you know that? You can't change the composition of a soul, not even your own. But Jesus says, I can. I did. So that you are no longer part of the world, no longer part of the rebel kingdom. You are out of it. You are in me. You did not choose me. It looked that way. I chose you. We need that. We need that truth to endure because we are unfaithful. If our remaining in Christ was dependent on our faithfulness, oh my goodness. We're done. We need this. And Jesus knows it and he tells them, 16.1, I've said these things to keep you from falling away. People are going to treat you badly because he says they have not known the Father, nor me. They're the world. But I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you'll remember that I told you. You'll remember that when I speak, my word accomplishes the thing for which it sets out to do. It accomplishes it. His words here will keep them from falling away. They have that effect. They will not fall away. And we also, we are going to need that truth. We need it. That feeling out of sync with the world is being his friend. His comfort is that this out of syncness that we, that we become familiar with, it reminds you that he picked you to be his friend. James writes, friendship, don't you know? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. But God yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. He holds us. So given what Jesus says at this crucial moment... It is strange, isn't it, how we often prefer to identify with him uh, in places and experiences that are more akin to the world than they are to him. That is, we seek the Christian life and to live it in ways that are very alien to him, what he's like. So to be a Christian, a follower, a friend of Jesus is to imitate him, to be with him, and to be where he is. And when he was in the flesh, he's calling this to the disciples' minds as he's talking about the opposition that he's faced. He wants them to have this in mind. When he was in the flesh, he was a man of sorrows. He was not in fancy houses He was a man of sorrows. He was in poverty. He was often hungry. Remember, friends, how we went from village to village, 
how we were dependent on the care of others, how we were frequently rejected, bearing contempt. Remember how I have lowered myself constantly. And then he goes to a cross. So how can we imitate him? How can we be his friend? How can we be with him if not also sharing his suffering? In the world, you will have tribulation because you have been taken out of the world and you've been put in him. How can you not have suffering? So when we find ourselves in it, his words remind us, I chose you for this. These are his words. I chose you for this and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit will abide. If you're in a hard place, hear this. You're never closer to the heart of Jesus than when you suffer for what's right and good. You're never closer to the fleshly experience of Jesus than when you are sorrowing. When you are experiencing loss, heartache, and trouble for the sake of others, there is no way in our experience to be closer to the heart of Jesus than that. You're close to the heart of the world when you try to accumulate to gain honor, to gain respect, power, prestige, to gobble up experiences that are perishing because you believe that's all there is and especially at cost to others. So this sounds hard. It is. We do ourselves a disservice if we try to paint the Christian life as really comfortable and just really happy all the time. The life of God, the way of Jesus, we simply cannot do on our own. We don't have that in our flesh. And so here's the Lord's other reassurance in this moment. It's the other big, big picture. You won't be left alone. You will not be left alone. And the time is short. Just a little while, he says. But however little while it is, you won't be left alone. He'd already told them about the Holy Spirit's coming. But he reminds them of it here because he means them to be comforted. That's why this moment's happening. He wants them to be comforted. Verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus will be on the throne. But the Father and Son will be with the chosen ones by his Spirit, who proceeds from them. He knows the way is too hard for us. Go ahead and personalize this. He knows the way is too hard for you. He knows the things that you have to go through are too hard for you. To be faithful, to bear the course out to the end. And so he gives us his power to do it. 
The world is too much with us, too much in us. We need the master, and he will master it. We need God's ruling hand. Not only the truth of God's unshakable friendship, that's empowering. The truth of, we have the friendship of the, the one who owns all. But we need his spirit to be with us. To remind us of the Lord's friendship in the midst of the trouble. And to give us the power. When the pressure comes from the outside rather than from the inside... One of the great comforts of this, one of the great comforts of the Spirit is in the, in the middle of the trouble, you don't have to worry about defending yourself. This is a great, great comfort. You don't have to worry about winning people over. Again, this is not the pressure that comes from the inside. It's the pressure from the outside. I do not have to overcome that. That's the work of the Spirit. Jesus says in verse 8, so part of this gift for you, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not on you. It's not on you. The Spirit awakens people to right and wrong. Convicts the world concerning sin, of rebellion against Jesus, against how to know the Lord Jesus. He convicts about righteousness and the fact of the world's alignment with Satan. Have some compassion on your unbelieving friends. They don't know that they are aligned with Satan. They don't know that their inner posture is with the kingdom of darkness against the God who loves them. They don't know that. The Holy Spirit is needed to convict them of that. That should give us compassion. The Spirit does that work. So in our troubles, we don't have to say the right just the right thing. We don't have to win the arguments. That was never our responsibility. He will. He will. So finally, zooming back out. The Lord Jesus cares so much for his adopted family. He cares so much for you. So much for those disciples that on the way to his torture and death, he gave them comfort. That's what he's like. He's the same Lord today. That's what he's like. He cares about your struggles. And so he's given you assurance of his friendship. He's given his spirit to comfort and encourage you. Just a little while, he says. Just a little while. That's all we've got. Teach us to number our days, we said. and We've sung. Just a little while. And then, I love this moment, and then there will be no need to ask for anything. In that day, you'll ask for nothing. Because you will be satisfied. In that day, you'll ask for nothing. When we are together again with the Lord, it's all, it's all there. There's no deprivation, no lack no hunger, no longing because it's satisfied completely. So for now, though, last thought, ask. This is sort of a, a final encouragement to, to this 
guys, you're going to be completely satisfied on the other side of this terrible operation, this surgery. You're not going to be alone. I'll be right there with you. And it's not going to last long. And then you'll be completely satisfied. But for, for the duration, in the meantime, ask. Just ask. Ask, ask, ask away. We should ask, we should just be asking with assurance that he loves and cares for us. We can just ask for whatever you think will be for your good. We're trusting that he's changing our desires. That was in our psalm. We're trusting he's changing our desires. But ask for whatever you think will be for your good and then trust him to make the judgment call. He never gives up being Lord and he never gives up being your good shepherd. You can ask anything and trust the one who loves all, all the way to his own death and suffering. The one who loves that much will surely give you what's best. He'll give you a right judgment on the thing you're asking. That's comfort. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you really are so good. Who and what you are is too wonderful for us to get a hold of. Lord, thank you for all the comforts you give, the assurances of your kindness, of your care, of your willingness to give what's good. Teach us how to view our days rightly, to number them, assess them rightly, and to ask in them what is good. We know that it's your delight, it's your good pleasure to give us good things. Change the things that we ask for so that we'll ask for the good one. So that the joy that of your granting us good things can be shared. We can all enjoy that goodness. Change our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.